Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 57, Control, recorded on June 1st, 2023. I think this is International Dinosaur Day. And this is also the final episode named Control. Uh, there were 10 of them, but we've made it. We're out of the control room and there's nobody left to control anything anyhow. It's too bad there's no one left though, because like, who's left to actually run the park? Well, you know, they're waiting to get rescued here. Are they just gonna let Tim and Lex play on the computers for the rest of the weekend? You think that's a good idea? Uh, we'll see. All right, thank you for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E, and you can check out his incredible albums on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Truth Time, and, uh, and our outro is from Two Cans. All right, we have some corrections today. Here goes. One of the most misquoted movies of all time remains The Field of Dreams, where conclusively the voice in Kevin Costner's head says, if you build it, he will come. It specifically refers to his dad so that they can go have a catch. And for no good reason, people have adopted some jump-first philosophy that if you invest greatly in something, that they will come. Thanks to some bastardization of this quote becoming, if you build it, they will come. Borrowing greatly from this film's success and that Kevin Costner's stupid idea to build a baseball diamond in his cornfield somehow was all worth it. Uh, believe me, more planning is involved in success than just building it, and certainly that's not nearly enough to ensure that they will come. But it did work for Field of Dreams, though, so congrats to them. I've uh, also recently learned that modern lithium batteries in our cell phones or whatever no longer are damaged or, or have their lifespan shortened by keeping them maintained at around 100% all of the time. There was once a belief, perhaps that uh, it was even a fact, I don't know, that for the benefit of the lifespan of your battery, uh, to let it run down close to empty before recharging it the first little the first little while that you had it. But thankfully, I think we've moved beyond that point. So that's a, that's a good one. Now, is my phone young enough to benefit from this information? I don't think so, but uh, but its battery lasts pretty good, so I'm happy with that. And finally, I never thought about it before, and um, perhaps you're all going to be like, duh, obviously, but, but uh, elephants do not drink through their noses any more than you or I drink through our noses. Rather, they just kind of suck water up into their nose and blow it into their mouths. More like a, like a cup, sort of, or... You know, a snotty cup. Like a, a long, vuvuzela-shaped, snotty, noisy cup. So, so good for elephants. In dinosaur news. The dinosaur news this week, we have two new animals that you may not have heard of. The first story comes from the journal Scientific Reports, published in May 2023. A new spinosaurid dinosaur species from the early Cretaceous of Sanct Torres, Spain. Based on the remains of a right maxilla and five caudal vertebrae from a single specimen, the authors describe a new spinosaur they named Protathlitis cinctorensis, acknowledging the animal's distinct subcircular depression in the anterior corner of the antorbital fossa in the maxilla, which is a mouthful. Uh, this becomes the second spinosaur known in the area at that time, along with Villabana venatrix cani, which indicates that the Iberian Peninsula was, quote, home to a highly diverse assemblage of medium to large bodied spinosaurid dinosaurs. You might say, Ryan, two Spinosaurs equates to a highly diverse assemblage, to which I would have to check my notes and clarify. This would mean that there are the following known moderate to large dinosaurs and Spinosaurs from the Baremian Age of Portugal and Spain. There's uh, the Spinosaurus Camarillosaurus, there's Villabuna venatrix, and Protathlitis, and Iberospinus. And then there's also the strange Concavenator, uh, which I don't know if it was a Spinosaur or not, but it may have been loosely related to them? Probably not. And then, there, you know, I, I looked into it. There was also an iguanodontid 
named Morelodon, and there were a bunch of sauropods in the area too, the Aragosaurus, the Demandosaurus, the Europa Titan, and Ruxinia. So there's a lot of theropods and sauropods and actually quite a few spinosaurs at that area. So um, I guess that's pretty highly diverse, an intriguing combination of spinosaurs and sauropods from the early Cretaceous in the uh, Iberian Peninsula. The phylogenetic analysis machine recovers this as a baryonic canine spinosaur, meaning there was more like a, a, a baryonyx-ish kind of animal. The authors observed, quote, it seems that spinosaurids appeared during the early Cretaceous in Laurasia, with the two subfamilies occupying the western part of Europe during this period. Later, during the Beremian Aptian switch, they migrated to Africa and Asia, where they would diversify. So in Europe, you get the baryonic canines, uh, who were dominant, while in Africa, spinosaurines were more abundant. And protathlitis is a Greek word for champion, which celebrates both the UEFA Europa League Championship won by Villarreal CF in 2021 and the club's 100th anniversary this year in 2023. And the specific name, Sinctorensis, refers to the town Sinctores, where the fossils were uncovered. So this is the champion of Sinctores, or Sinctores is the land of champions, or something like that. I don't know. Uh, the second news item today is from March 2022 in the, in the Cambridge University Press called A New Bohyornithid-Like Bird from the Lower Cretaceous of China Fills a Gap in Enantiornithine Disparity. There's a lot of tongue twisters in today's news. Phew, it's about time someone addressed the disparity in the Enantiornithine Gap in Lower Cretaceous China. <laughs> I'm being cheeky, but here it goes. Uh, a new Enantiornithine Musivavis amabilis from the Lower Cretaceous J-Hole Biota in Western Laoning, China, is described as, quote, similar to Bohyornithids, and they list a series of common features, but have to admit, quote, it differs from members of Bohyornithidae in several features recalling other enantiornithine lineages. They say, quote, a comprehensive phylogenetic analysis of Mesozoic birds shows that homoplasty significantly affects the reconstruction of enantiornithine relationships. When all phylogenetic characters are considered of equal weight, Musivavis is reconstructed in a lineage related to a radiation of large-bodied enantiornithines, including Bohyornithidae and Pengornithidae. Alternative scenarios based on progressive downweighting of the homoplastic characters support more basal placements of the Pengornithids among your and antiornithines, but do not alter the affinity of Musivavis as a member of the Bohyornithid grade group. So what makes a bird distinctively a member of Bohyornithidae? These are predatory ancestral birds from the Cretaceous with teeth rather than a beak. Their distinguished teeth were large, robust, and conical, with sharply pointed tips which curved backwards. And they're known to have a long ribbon-like tail feather uh, or feathers with barbs at their tips, and they had legs like ospreys, but their teeth suggested they ate shellfish or crustaceans. Musivavis had scansorial adaptations in its foot, meaning they were good for climbing, and was small in the range of sizes known in Bohyronithids. This suggested it occupied, quote, an ecological niche distinct from those of its closest relatives, because the limbs were less osprey-like and more pengornithid-like. So this indicates that it may be an ancestor which demonstrates a gap in the series of adaptations between the more basal pengornithids and the somewhat more derived Bohyronithids. That's if the phylogenetic tree has been erected truly, which nobody's saying it has. It's just, you know, that's what the present analysis suggests. Uh, you know, results subject to change might be a common saying in paleontology. Uh, I don't know if it is, but I think they all operate under that proviso. But anyhow, with the corrections of the dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. All right, today I would like to welcome to the show Mike. Mike, who is the host of Mike's Book Reviews who is a Houston sports guy aiming to bring a little bit of positivity back to social media, creating discussion videos about sci-fi, horror, and fantasy literature. 
He says he's married, he has kids, and you can find him at Zep1978 on Twitter and Instagram. You can find him at Mike's Book Reviews on YouTube and Facebook. You can follow him in at least four ways. Are you on other social media platforms too? Uh, TikTok, but I realize I'm way too old. I just feel like a, even more of a dinosaur. Let's stay on brand here with what we're talking about today. I feel like <laughs> even more of a dinosaur when I get on TikTok. And I realize uh, that probably isn't my, my target demographic right there. Incredible. All right. Well, welcome to the show. Now, Mike, you and I have never met before. Is that correct, sir? As far as I know. And no money has true. changed hands between us. I mean, I'll take some, but not that I know of yet. <laughs> well, then how is it demo. that I have, look at this, I have your wallet right here. That's a magic right. trick just for you. If you look inside, you'll find that uh, the money's all gone. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's an inside joke only my brother might get. <laughs> All right, well, thank I'm you. Dad jokes with my kids, and I don't think I think they might have laughed at that one. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, tell us a bit about Mike's book reviews. It looks like you've been doing it for for ages. How long have you been doing it? What got you started into to wanting to share your love of books and reading? Uh, it's kind of an accident. Uh, I podcasted for years before this. And I was actually doing a podcast at the time, just talking about media. And my co-host, outside of like comic books, he really didn't read very much. So I was always like wanting to talk about these books. And I was starting to read Wheel of Time for the first time. And I said, this is a big 14-book series. I'll probably forget stuff. I already had a YouTube channel for the podcast because it was the easiest way was the easiest way to host it. So I thought, hey, I'll just go ahead and upload these things. Where I, Each Wheel of Time book I'll finish, I'll just make like a little video diary. So I remember what happened in each book because it's going to be a long time we'll be reading these, right? And then one day uh, after that, I realized, whoa, these got like a couple thousand views. My podcast never get thousand views. What's going on? And I started reading the comments. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, you should check out this channel, this channel, just BookTube. Channel. I was like, what is BookTube? I've never heard of this. And I'm like, really? You don't know what this is? And I found my people, basically. That's that's kind of how it started. That was in 2019. Like I said, just kind of off the cuff. I never really meant to be a BookTuber. But then it just kind of took off. Then, you know, when lockdown happened, I think a lot of people were at home. You know, and they were looking for something to do, and yeah. I guess they found the channel. That's just uh, kind of how it just kind of took off a little bit after that, and that's uh, that's my only my only side gig now is just BookTube because it is a uh, it is quite the venture. That's cool, and you reviewed a, a tremendous amount of content. It's incredible how much you've got up there. It's really I like. There's a lot of book podcasts. I don't know how people read books so much. Like when I was in college, we had to like write a paper on them whenever we read them, and so you're always reading it thinking you're going to make an argument, but like you, you worry that you'll miss something and that, uh, and that will be the missing piece you need <laughs> to, to, to get the A, you know? And yeah, so I read so slow. out there who do like, Oh, I read like 60 books. That's not me. I, yeah. I'm, I'm like three or four books a month. But my, my thing is I don't watch very much TV. Yeah. I game a little bit with the kids and stuff, but uh, it's my primary form of entertainment. And I tell people all the time, you know, you don't doom scroll Twitter. You know, you <laughs> don't, you don't watch a ton of TV. You'd be surprised how much time you got to read. Especially since my kids are the age now where they just, they just want to be left alone so they can, you know, do their own thing. It's like, all right, cool. I'll sit here and read. So I, I don't think I, I read super fast or anything, but I, I, I do know what you mean. You go on some of these booktubers channels and they're putting down 50 plus books a month and I'm, cause they audio book. I don't audio book. Oh. I, I have listening ADD. I can't listen to audio. I wish I could. Mm -hmm. I'd love to have something to do while I'm mowing the lawn. You know, that'd be great. But uh, no, uh, four books a month is about the, what I do. So I don't consider that crazy. Well, it took me a long time to accept that, you know, you don't need to, you know, find the riddle that's hidden inside the book. You don't, you don't yeah. need to bring extra texts into the book to make sense. The author will tell you what you need to know in due time. Yeah, if you have a book tube channel, you'd be surprised. People are just waiting to jump on that one thing that you missed and oh, then yeah. accuse you of not reading it. 
<laughs> like I'd be doing this if I if I I have no no I no reason to lie to you about what I'm reading, you know. But <laughs> the internet's funny. So you're I, I found you because you did a, a video on Jurassic Park, and it right. was a, a revisiting of Jurassic Park. You had mentioned that mm-hmm. you had read it back in the '90s, and you hadn't is this right read it again until you did the book review is that true right yeah when i started the channel i started being like there's a lot of people who i felt like michael Crichton, who was my second favorite author only behind stephen king felt like his stuff was starting to get like a little bit forgotten uh people obviously thought of jurassic park because that's like an undying brand it's unkillable i mean they've made horrible (laughs) movie after horrible movie and it just keeps going and every time one of those movies comes out it makes a couple billion dollars so i mean just people love dinosaurs Mm -hmm. right so I think it's an unkillable brand, but to me, I was like, I want to kind of get Michael Crichton's name back out there somehow, you know, because uh, again, he passed away in 2008, and I've just now started to find authors I, I feel like are somewhat similar to him, but I wanted to make sure that people were trying to find his old stuff. So I just started revisiting all the stuff in order, and a lot of people stuck with me until Jurassic Park. You know, they just wanted to get to Jurassic Park, I think, because they never, you know, they've watched the movie a million times. They love it. And so they want to see what the book was all about. But yeah, it was the first time I'd revisited it since uh, I went and got it right after the movie, just like everybody else, mm-hmm. and read it like immediately. Like, Whoa, this is so different. But man, both are so good. Mm-hmm. I find that it's, uh, there's so much in there. There's a lot of fun science, there's a lot of philosophy. And that uh, yeah. going back and reading it again after a period of time has its rewards because you do remember, oh, this is new and this is new. But also, it's very special in that the film is very, very visible. We can see and we can hear the orchestral accompaniment when the dinosaurs arrive. We can we can feel the movie, and it's mm-hmm. it's so ingrained in our in our ability to see Jurassic Park that uh, that that kind of overrides in a lot of ways what you what you remember from the book. And so there are surprises again, like oh yeah, this is so different from the from the movie as well and so a reread it's like the shining by stephen king i feel like the movie and the book are both great for different reasons Mm -hmm. whereas i feel like the movies uh, the movie of jurassic park is kind of like a fun family adventure it it really can be (laughs) kind of for all ages whereas the book's got a lot more horror and and science and philosophy in it i think but it still has those things too it's a little bit of a little bit of everything yeah well i remember yeah a couple times like going back and thinking oh yeah i remember this for i don't remember this at all i remember before I really got into this again, that uh, there's a whole conclusion where they're where they're uh, chasing raptors into like a nest and things like that. Like I was like, oh yeah, I forgot all about this. At one point, yeah, I've seen the movie so many times with my kids now. I mean, I'd already seen it a few dozen times before they were even born. Mm-hmm. But I've seen it with my kids so many times now. There's parts where I started to be like, did that happen in the book or the movie? You know, I will, I will kind of. Kind of like how I've read, a, you know, a song of ice and fire dozens of times, but I got so used to the television show, I started being like. Which one? Which one happened on Game of Thrones, and which one happened in Song of Ice and Fire? That that, that does happen from time to time. If you uh, if you visit one more than the other, more recently than the other. Mm-hmm. Well, when you reread it, it's astonishing that it was the first time in in a long time in decades. A long time, yeah. right? Uh, and <laughs> like also, this this if, if you do have a, a concern that you 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 missed the point or something like that, and somebody's going to jump all over you for it, like your video, you selected a bunch of quotes from Malcolm. You nailed it. Like you found like this is what it's all about. This is the argument. This is why everything they're doing is a bad idea. You found the the heart of the of the of the book, and you put it right at the front of your video. So I mean, you nailed it. In, in far as far yeah, as I can tell, Mr. Crichton did kind of write himself into that book. Yeah. I think in the first. Is that Malcolm? That <laughs> was basically him. Yeah. That's so. Do you think that is that? How do I put this? You read a lot. Do you see the author's voice so clearly in other books as as you do with Malcolm and Michael Crichton? Uh, maybe just Stephen King. You know, Stephen King always will write an author <laughs> as his 
protagonist. Yeah. I, I think that might be about the only one. But yeah, Crichton will always he'd like to have a an everyman, or he'd like to make the you know the the smart scientist kind of the hero, and that was kind of what made his books a little differently, or, or just the everyman, I think. But they would always have a little bit of a scientific edge to him, where I think that he was able to use like one of his three PhDs to tell us why he was the smartest man in the room everywhere he went. Yeah. Yeah. Why you should listen to me. <laughs> yeah. So who I you mean, some... I, I, have, I have zero PhDs, so I'm willing to lie. There's a lot of people give Crichton a lot of a lot of heat for some of the things he said. But I always admit, look, Michael Crichton's smarter than me, so I'm at least going to listen to what he has to say. I'm not saying I'm going to believe or disbelieve, you know, no matter what. I'm just mm-hmm. saying I'm going to at least listen to the guy because he's probably done his homework. Yeah, for sure. So what are some of your, your favorite characters that are in either the book or the movie? Like but, uh, when you think back on Jurassic Park, who do you go, oh, yeah, that guy really nailed it? Or... Uh... Well, I think in the movie they make Hammond out to be like this nice grandfatherly person. He just wants the park to be experienced by children. And, you know, everyone should be able to come into the book. He's like a complete mo- – he's basically the lawyer mm-hmm. in the book where he's just like, yeah, the rich people can come, but the poor people can't and stuff like that. That that, that I wouldn't say that's a, a favorite character or Nedry, him or Nedry, but, uh, of course, Grant and, 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 and Dr. Malcolm. And Doctor Sattler. I mean, that trio is just you know that's that's the Han Luke and Leia. I think of this story. It's, it's hard <laughs> not to really get on board with them. And I, I'm I'm drawing a blank on his name right now, but the guy who runs the Raptor Pen, the, the oh, Hunter. Dune, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's great. I think he's great. Yeah. Yes, they're all very interesting. They all have their their ups and downs. That's for sure. And uh, with Muldoon, he seems very responsible and he seems very on top of things. But as we go through all the problems in the park, it's like, oh, yeah, the grounds crew didn't do the things I told them to. He's like, well, dude, isn't it your job to kind of like oversee what they're doing and like hold it? Like, it's he almost just... like they were meddling with powers that they shouldn't be, like, <laughs> he probably can't comprehend yet. And know? then like the dinosaurs get out. So the first thing he does is crack open a bottle of whiskey at 7 a.m. and starts, <laughs> he finishes a bottle. <laughs> can't before... take it with you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Like this guy's supposed to. We put our hand and you know our lives in this guy's hands, and he's. It's uh... <laughs> so funny because I read it in the '90s. I, I I imagined him as Steve Irwin, like the crocodile hunter, mm. <laughs> like sure. a drunk version of him. That's kind of what I imagined. Sure. Him. Yeah, they describe him as having like this uh, big gray mustache, and I could just see him being this curly, you know, safari esque sort of thing. But yes, um, it's... like the villain in Jumanji. Yeah, a little. <laughs> Yo, we just watched Jumanji, and there's something about. Um, uh, the little boy's father is played by the hunter as well. So the same actor plays yeah. the hunter that's yeah. chasing him. And there's something really disturbing about having this single-minded hunter chasing them from end to end of that movie, looking to like shoot them dead. And it's played by the guy's dad. That's so bizarre. Yeah. And uh, I know if you want yeah, that changes that movie really hard for me. <laughs> That's not one of those things you watch something or read something, you know, when you're younger. Because like I said, I read a lot of these Stephen King and Michael Crichton books when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And going back now, you know, after having kids and stuff and looking at things like you're bringing up, would you mind? You look at it in such a different light. Mm-hmm. And uh, Crichton and King are both such great writers that they do have a different meaning, I think, you mm-hmm. know, depending on what age you're reading something, especially when you're revisiting it. I think that when they make, and Crichton does this in, in both the Jurassic Parks, and, and you see it in a lot of film as well, where they're kind of, will nerf the story a little bit by putting kids in it. And so it can't be yeah. as, as perhaps adult as possible because there's, there's little eras around in some respects. But what was wonderful about it was that, you know, you or I, when we were in, in 1993, we could identify with the Tims. 
yeah. of the of the oh, film. Yeah. And so oh, when yeah. you watch it, you really do. You watch it again after you have kids, and then that scene up in the tree where Grant's like connecting with the children as a as as an as a parent. That's a totally different yeah, scene. Yeah. And uh, and that movie's full yeah, of those. Or you're just like, oh, brachiosauruses, you know. Then you're like, oh man, look at them, like with these kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or just being scared that Kim's in the Tim's in the in the in the Land Cruise and the trees coming down. And yeah, what a wild. A lot of things that went into it that I I'd never thought of. And you watch it again. Yeah, and the again. thing I think the the feedback I got the most in that video I did about Jurassic Park was people were like, I didn't like the book that much because I thought the is it a. Lexi, is that her name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought she was just like too annoying. I'm like, so you guys clearly don't have kids. Kids are annoying. It don't matter what's going on. They're always hungry. They've always got to go to the bathroom. I was like, that that was that was on the screen too mm-hmm. about how annoyed that Grant was with the kids. You know that 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 that's just how kids are. It don't matter how stressful the situation it is. But I can see when I was 15, I probably thought she was annoying too. You know, <laughs> for sure. No, and uh, and she's super cool in the movie, and uh, mm-hmm. they really they they level that out. I figured. What it was, so she's mechanically very useful in the book, in that, uh, and you see this earlier in the film or in the novel. Uh, whenever there's something going on, like on the tour, Gennaro is always asking questions, and if you isolate only his dialogue, he is literally just asking like grade school questions, prompting narrative and exposition from the from the specialists around the park, and literally his only mechanism in, the, in as as the lawyer is being this person that in, uh, provokes exposition. Which is good for us because that way we don't have to just read it. Somebody's actually saying it. But Lex, when you get later, Crichton is an expert at building tension. Every time that they go to do one task, there are three or four obstacles that stop them from doing it. And you never feel resolution. It always is dragging on and on and on as they are, are trying to save their lives. And Lex is part of this dramatic conflict. She's just there to stop them or be a barrier. And, uh, and it's fairly transparent after a point. When you when you identify it, you go, oh, she doesn't want to get in the boat. Oh, and she can't swim. And she hasn't done up her life raft or her life uh, vest. And, 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 and she's annoying. And she's being loud. And she coughs at the wrong thing. Like, everything she does is just built into making it more tense, expanding that tension. And so could a better writer, one that won awards and stuff like that, was a distinguished writer, might have done it more more suavely but uh but it's there and it I works that's when you have the example of uh when steven spielberg gets a hold of your project yeah. and, and uh, puts his finessing on it because you know that guy's a master when it comes to working with kids steven spielberg was mm-hmm. especially still in his prime back then you know so yeah yeah i think that look as great a writer as i think Crichton was i mean you're talking about spielberg that guy had the magic touch you know so he was able to finesse those characters a little bit that thing because i've always said like with Crichton, great ideas thrilling stories characters are always like hit or miss you know they really were but <laughs> yeah uh, but you're, you're dealing with kid characters but yeah now that you just point out everything i'm like yeah god maybe lex was annoying mm-hmm. yeah Crichton didn't seem <laughs> to be too concerned with with building like true heroes that you look up to he had people that were real they were but they were never built up to be like better than you you know what i mean they were pros or they were professionals but they were never they never really had a moral high ground in a way they all kind of had their own i guess that's fair uh, things to look for I, I can think of like uh even was it next and it starts off at like a, a science conference and everybody's like uh being in you know having infidelities and things like that at this conference and, and that's all your heroes for the book are these uh these people are just getting together while they're uh, away talking about the, how genetics are going to be you know perverted in the future <laughs> that's that's a, that's a, that's what i think michael Crichton probably called a party right there we're going to get together and we're going to have a science off <laughs> 
know, we talk about differences from the movie. How about the fact that they make uh, Dr. Malcolm like handsome rock star looking Jeff Goldblum, you know, yes. when he was still like in his thing. It was just like, that's a choice because, again, I think he was he like short, fat, and bald. <laughs> yeah, he was bald and tall. Yeah, oh, is that what it was? Okay. I think it was. You think like Brian Posehn or something like that. <laughs> but he was thin too, yeah. Uh, but yeah, when they say that he was a, like a rock star, and then they get Malcolm in there, or Goldblum in there, I wonder what rock star he was channeling. You know what I mean? I think it'd be a fun exercise to think, like, what different types of rock stars might he have? Could he have been an Axl Rose? Could he have been a... Morrissey or something. A Johnny Cash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what kind of... Would, a Lemmy Kilminster. What kind of rock star could he... Could All he I know is if you watched uh, Thor Ragnarok, Jeff Goldblum, he could probably, he could probably rock out a little bit, I think. <laughs> well, he's, I think he's very well regarded as a as a jazz musician. Yeah, I believe it. I yeah. believe it. Um, so when you're when you're taking notes and reading all these books, what generally sticks out to you in a novel that you like the most, or, or when you're reading a novel, you go, oh, I don't like that. What 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 are the things that I guess you're happy to find, or what sort of things do you think? Oh no, I had to read this whole thing and it's already bugging me. Well, things I hate is, and you'll hear this a lot. So I think from Gen Xers. Is we don't like that our that when characters when our heroes don't struggle a little bit, mm. they're just like the best at everything and everyone loves them, no questions asked. It was like, why am I why am I rooting for this person? I have zero stakes in them. I don't fear for them like whatsoever. So I like the old Joseph Campbell's hero's journey kind of thing when it comes to my characters. I mean, I, I love that. I grew up a fantasy fan, so of course I'm about that hero's journey. But uh, for me, it's just a great character work will get me in every time. If you have great characters that I can't get enough of and I want to know more about them, and I love the way they're talking to each other, talking like real people talk to each other, Mm -hmm. I love that. I'm going to end up liking your story probably. But you can have the greatest world building. You can have the greatest prose ever. If I think your characters are lousy or they're unearned, I check out. Mm -hmm. You hear a lot of people like, for example... A real popular book in the fantasy community is Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Guy's a magnificent author when he actually does write. He's a magnificent writer. I did not like his character, so I did not really like his book. So it's like, I'll be like, oh, well, I could just, you know, I could listen to him just describe the grass growing. I'm like, well, that's good, because that's what I felt like that book was. <laughs> paint drawing, you know, but I know it's a very popular book, and I have very, a very unpopular opinion on that. But for me, like I said, I'm not on board your characters. I'm not on board for your story. I don't care how great the world is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you make a good point. The same thing kind of plays out in in movies as well. It could be a fun movie, it could be great visuals, but if you don't, if you don't really care. You're just watching a character go through the motions, kind of one at a time. It just feels yeah. And if you don't think that, oh, there's no chance, there's no chance that the bad guys can win. Why am I even watching? Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> and I think you got to fear for him a little bit. Like Crichton wasn't a master at character work, but. King really did build some very interesting characters. He oh, always yeah, no, did. King's amazing character writer. And yeah, if you think where, where of like... Crichton's going to have you on the seat of your pants like yeah. the whole time, like biting your fingernails. I think King will have you really invested in their daily lives. And I think two very accessible ones that I've I've been with, uh, Shawshank and, and The Green Mile, are just extraordinary. Oh, yeah. And... Oh, yeah. Uh, two all-timers right there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Two great movies, too, which is very rare for a, uh, <laughs> for a Stephen King adaptation. Great movies. And you know what? Crichton's not that far behind. He had a lot of bad adaptations too, man. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I like Andromeda Strain, the original, and I and I think Jurassic Park. That might be it. That might be it. Congo's <laughs> one of the worst things I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, I think. I mean, I was I was excited about that movie. I went and saw it in the theater, and I was just like so mad. I was like, dude, they got Tim Curry in this too. There's no way this yes. can be bad. Oh my 
God, that was atrocious. I just reread Congo, and that character doesn't exist. They built that into yeah. the film. And uh, <laughs> like, for the better. Try to save this. Let's see if Tim Curry can carry it. Nope. No. <laughs> it's too late. When it almost he... seems like he was like wrote in later or something. <laughs> His line about the, the myth being absolutely true and just the way he enunciates absolutely uh, will never leave me, but, legend. but I cannot pronounce it myself. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, most of his, most of his movie adaptations are damn near unwatchable. I mean, I like like 13th Warriors. I know a lot of people get that movie shit, but I'm like, that's ah, pretty good. I actually thought, I mean, maybe it's just because the bar had been lowered so bad with mm. a lot of his adaptations. But yeah, Jurassic Park's always going to be, I mean, it's probably one of the best movies, at least of my generation, mm-hmm. I think, without a doubt. Yeah. Well, I think Congo came out and was disappointing and because, A, I mean, I mean, obviously it didn't have the same budget as Jurassic Park, but it, it was kind of but like... it was what came right after? Yeah, yeah. Can this story also capture the imagination and also capture that, you know, lightning in a bottle? And the answer was no. <laughs> I was excited for Timeline, too, and that one was like even worse. I was like, oh my God, are they trying? Yeah. <laughs> you know, the budget must have been even lower for that one. And that was such a that cool That was story. like a high school production, I swear. But Sphere had a huge <laughs> cast. And Sphere didn't fare any better either. Sphere, I don't understand why that didn't work. Great cast. I thought the sets were great. They had money put into it. It had a decent team behind it. I don't know why that didn't work. That, that, that's one of those ones that's just like, I don't know, maybe they just missed the point of that story. And I know we're really derailing from Jurassic Park yeah. here. But, <laughs> I, I, Sphere is a story, man, that just completely warped my mind. I still think about that ending like all the time. Mm-hmm. Because there's people who still speculate about that ending. And uh, that movie, should have worked i was like man this cast is amazing they've got so much money poured in this they got great great talent behind the camera and just didn't work i don't mm. know I, it, I felt like almost a, horizon almost adapted that better than they did <laughs> you know the, the future's full of new ideas maybe they'll one day they'll, they'll brush it off and try again yeah that's why i said it's like a lot of these like stephen king ones are trying to make again i'm like you know usually i'm like oh god stop with the remakes and i'm like you know try again Look, they just tried. They tried again with Dune, and look, it, it turned out pretty good. Mm, you yeah. know, so sometimes it's like maybe we should try again with some of these really bad ones. And, and Dune, the original, was um, that was a real art project. That one, <laughs> yeah. there's a lot going on in that. that was, that's what happens when you let David Lynch be David Lynch. Yeah, that's, uh, that's my favorite book of all time, and that was being the best adaptation of that movie that we that, that story that we had was rough for me for most of my life. So <laughs> I'm glad I get to replace that now. <laughs> Speaking of things that are important to us when we were young is uh, the dinosaurs. They're the stars of the novel. They're the intrigue. That's what drives us to want to go and watch Jurassic Park. And that's oh, what we sure. Want. I mean, you know what's better in the book is it's two T-Rexes, not one. Yes. You know what I mean? Hell yeah, there's two T-Rexes. Yeah, it's great. And yeah, a lot of that stuff that they kind of left out of the book, uh, uh, Spielberg did put in Lost World, the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, like the water, I believe the waterfall scene was actually... In, was that actually in this book? I think it was in Jurassic Park, in, wasn't yeah, it? Not Lost yeah. World. It was, in, yeah, it was so adapted those, in a way, yes. Yeah, so he, he put some of that stuff. So you know, Steven Spielberg was a huge, huge Crichton fan. Like he he still to this day says he wants to make Pirate Latitudes. Does he? So it was just, <laughs> it was just luck. You know, the funny thing is, is, you look back on it now, and Steven Spielberg and James Cameron were battling for mm-hmm. the rights to make this movie. And I was like, I at times, I mean, I wonder what James Cameron would have made because I think if we've learned anything the last twenty years is like, don't doubt James Cameron. Everyone's like, oh, nobody wants another Avatar. Billions and billions and billions of dollars. Somebody clearly wants it, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, I, I wonder because he said he would have done more like the novel, made a little more horror like the novel is. So yeah. I kind of wonder what that would have turned. I would like to see a an Earth Two plot line, yeah, where James Cameron made that movie. Well, the money will come if they just did it. Universal just has to green light it. I don't know why they're stubborn about it. <laughs> the money, the money was in their pockets as soon as they. they, they That's they, what they, I'll get. It's like okay, Spielberg, the biggest name in directing. 
and Jurassic Park had been the biggest movie of all time when it came out, and yet they had budget restrictions for Lost World. I'll never understand. Why did you not give that guy a blank? Because they talk about the, the last act of that movie just kind of falls apart, mm-hmm. and they said they ran out of money. And I'm like, Spielberg, the biggest movie of all time, the follow-up, and you're telling me you, you got cheap on them, Universal? I'll never understand it. Mm-hmm. Never understand it. Mm-hmm. We make a good point about the two Tyrannosaurs that are in the book. I look uh, very closely at it after the uh, the Tyrannosaurus journey from uh, from the paddock to chasing the kids down the river. And the big Rex, as far as I can tell, only eats a goat. It beats up the Land Cruisers. It kicks Malcolm around. Um, it chases kids all over. It is a big villain, and it's always that chasing doesn't them. kill Gennaro in the book, does it? No. no. The juvenile gets Ed Regis. Yeah. That's right. So the big Rex at the end is tranquilized, lying in a in a the lagoon beneath the the waterfall, and then they they napalm the island. And uh, it was just uh, I looked back on it, I was like, you know what? For all the trouble the big Rex gave them, she oh she didn't need anybody. <laughs> well, I think that it kind of flipped where it was like the the T Rexes were like the wonder, whereas the Raptors kind of became the villain yes. in that last act. Yeah, the Raptors, which were scary as hell. Yes. And you think about it, it's like, I think about growing up, Velociraptors were never nearly as popular among kids until Jurassic Park came out. Mm-hmm. No mm-hmm. one talked about Velociraptors before that movie. And, you know, That's now right. they got NBA teams named after them and stuff, you know, so. Uh, yeah, he definitely he definitely made the uh, the Raptors cool, for sure. Yeah, championship NBA teams, just a couple years ago, that saw. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I thought that uh, he did a wonderful job. There's 15 dinosaurs on the island, 13 of them appear in the book most of them over and over again like you really get a good journey and you get to interact with with yeah almost all of them it's pretty impressive that he put that much in there considering you know it seems like Crichton didn't really care for dinosaurs <laughs> but he's wonder at doing research and he managed to come uh, yeah. up with a lot yeah the uh god what are the little tiny ones called that eat the baby at the beginning the compies the procomsignate yeah compies i i think it's like you could just tell this guy was like okay what is the most unlikely dinosaur to eat somebody yeah. let me have him eat a baby that's pretty good <laughs> so i remember i saw the movie and then i got home with the book and i read that part i was like what the hell am i reading <laughs> killing babies and stuff in the first chapter jeez it's like yeah king isn't even doing this yet you know? so, <laughs> yeah that that, that was a while but yeah i mean quite you could always tell he he did his homework he, he would try to get kind of steady on it. like you go back to some of those like andromeda strain it's just like pages and pages of science stuff it's like wow but the thing is, is when i was doing this reread and i was going to self i was be like oh let me do that i'm like i'm not going to fact check michael Crichton. i know he did his homework and i mean the, the guy listed his references at the end of his books for god's sakes like yeah. it was a high school paper or something you know the guy was a pro so yeah, I can always count on him doing his his homework. But yeah, you could tell that maybe even if it wasn't something that he wasn't really crazy about, mm-hmm. he was going to do his homework and, and know more than you about it. You know, mm-hmm. by the time he was done researching it. And you're right; he gave so many good examples that it lends their credibility and their their reality to his science fiction. That makes you know he's not just talking about like some goober or device that he's invented the, the flux capacitor or something that doesn't exist yeah. like he's he's got no that's what i've always appreciated about yeah. his books is he always would talk about technology that seemed like it was right there like he, he was right around the corner mm-hmm. it was something we could do but he's always always great and this is something that blake crouch a more modern writer that i love that's kind of picked up that torch i believe mm-hmm. that he always focused on is like okay yeah that technology is doable but maybe we shouldn't you know maybe <laughs> we should at that point where you stop 
church playing God and stuff. Maybe we shouldn't be doing that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I think Grant was always great at asking that question. Mm-hmm. And this whole book kind of serves as that, as a, I was trying to liken that Jurassic Park is like Pandora's box. And this whole, he leads into the story saying, you know, biotechnology, it, it could change the face of the earth literally. And we had to be very, very careful with it. And then it segues into the story about it being used without care. And, uh, and yeah, these raptors getting to the mainland on the boat would be, you know, the Pandora's box opening. Yeah, he does a very good job of, of um, putting the lid back on it, blowing up the island. And I think that, yeah, we're supposed to read that, you know, the world is saved from the, the misadventures of biotech for one more day. Uh, and then Spielberg asked Michael Crichton to write a sequel, and he was like, crap, yeah. how do I unkill the Malcolm? <laughs> <laughs> he worked at it. So I think it's very interesting that, that Crichton is so very clearly embodied as, you know, he has an avatar on the island. It is Ian Malcolm. It's somewhat right. uncommon, but he's it's funny because um, Malcolm doesn't really need to even be on the island in that he already gave his report and uh, he already told them that, they, you know, they shouldn't, they shouldn't do this. And it's not like on the island he's going to, find something new to calculate that's going to change his opinion on on whether or not they should be doing this he's just kind of there to say i told you so the whole time but more importantly he's there so that Crichton can have his message delivered that he has something to say about biotech he was um i know one of the the things in terms of fact checking that uh he was really he puts it in the book and i know that Crichton, as a med student was aware of this going on at the time was that there was this onco mouse it was this uh Harvard was had a, a lab, and they designed a mouse to give cancer to that was susceptible to this, so they could do studies on this mouse and work on cancer va- uh, treatments. And they patented the mouse, and they wanted to to let it be known that this living thing was their property, and they could do with it as they wished. And this to Crichton seemed like not only a slippery slope, but a problem like this is not the way to do it you can't own people and then when he goes and writes next that they're patenting uh genes <laughs> they're patenting all kinds of stuff mm-hmm. to stop uh, just to say it's theirs and he really felt that there this was the direction that the world was going in and it was gonna be a big big problem so it, it feels so strange that, that malcolm is there to be his voice and so i thought that was very interesting for him to do that and of course malcolm is is, is famous for it I don't remember in like state of fear him having a, a character that was so overtly <laughs> his voice, but uh, what, how do you think that that affected the novel? How do you think that it changed the messaging? Do you think that it, it was done with style? Like <laughs> everybody seems to love Malcolm, so maybe it was the right I can, call. I can see the the complaints when people told me like that. Okay, like I just did my top ten books of all time, and mm-hmm. I had Jurassic Park in there, and people were like oh, it's a little too preachy for me, and I'm like, I mean, I think that. You can have a book that you can give your opinions in, and I, to me, it doesn't necessarily sound like preaching. Like I said, with, with Crichton, I'm always like, look, I didn't necessarily say I'm in lockstep with everything the guy believed at, at all. What I what I would say is always that he's done his homework, so I'm always going to listen to what he has to say. There's lots of people. I know that the, today's today's culture is if you have a different opinion of me, I'm going to shut you down. Uh, whereas you know, us Gen Xers are usually more like. Ah, you know, I might not agree, but sure, I, I, I respect your right to say what you believe. So I think that he was never shy about that. And it got him, you just got him in hot water, you know, posthumously, mm-hmm. I, I think with a lot of people, especially when you're talking about state of fear. 
because that deals with uh, you know, the big CC word. <laughs> and uh, that, that's always going to get people going uh, one way or the other. But I, I think he has that message with Malcolm in this is that, look, you may want to believe that we're this big, awful thing, but it's like we've been like a blink in the existence of this planet and it'll be here before us, it'll be here long after us kind mm. of thing. And I can see how some people don't like that. You know, but I understood what he was what he was going for with that. I mean, if you've ever watched like a Neil deGrasse Tyson special, he says the same things, guys. Mm-hmm. And I don't see anybody get mad at him for anything, you know. So <laughs> unless he's like, you know, fact checking a movie and people get mad about that. But uh, I don't know. You're going to have that with 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 anybody who is married to science. Is they're always going to be giving a hypothesis. They're not mm-hmm. telling you you have to believe it. They're saying this is what I've researched and this is what I have found. I'm not trying to convince you. I'm just telling you these are my findings. It's a hypothesis. It's mm-hmm. not to me. It's not preaching. It's like this is my results. This is what I. This is what I've come up with. I found that uh, one of the biggest things that came out of Jurassic Park, specifically as sci-fi, was this idea that cloning an extinct animal was possible, mm-hmm. and that dinosaur DNA is possible to acquire. And so it felt very realistic, but there was another yeah. science that became very, very famous that everybody seems to believe in that thinks is a true thing. And it's this chaos theory. And, chaos theory. Uh, and it became very famous too. I don't think anybody would know what chaos theory was or is how it works. Every book he had to just try to let you know about a different profession. That was someone actually had that profession in <laughs> real life. He would try, he would try to put that in a book and a chaos theorist was the one for this book. Yeah. For sure. And I think that as important as it felt that it really was just in service to, to lay the groundwork for what Malcolm's ambitions were. He spoke of like this scientific era and that it was built on this premise that if you knew enough that you would be able to predict the weather or stock markets or something like that. That this ability to predict, if you put in enough factors and data, that you could calculate outcomes and therefore you would have some level of control. And and chaos theory was against that. And so his, his philosophy is knowing that you cannot attain truth, that you know you cannot truly predict and control the future that these things are unknowable that science will never ever and can never never give you these answers that the entire system was built to do this means that everything you're doing is in vain that it's not worth it and that it needs to be taken down rebuilt get rid of this system is not working and he called this the end of the scientific era and um and chaos theory just kind of is this idea it, it, it kind of enlivens that perspective it informs what malcolm had to say but in terms of like it becoming such a famous thing that people believe in and talk about and think is operating in their everyday life uh it's just amazing how chaos theory is another star that emerged out of this book and i think it goes uncelebrated in a lot of ways people don't seem to to credit jurassic park for after i after i had kids i just i just accept the chaos is going to happen yeah so (laughs) that's about the closest as i come to it but I, I love the the theme of you know you were so and this is a big thing with science and scientific findings is you you want to be first that's obviously the name of the game of science but uh, you know you're so worried about if you could you never stop to think you should mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's that's just the biggest lesson out of this entire book to me is just like sure we could do these things probably shouldn't and another thing that Crichton usually does is yes people would start doing these things with an idea to do good 
but over time, it's just going to keep, it's going to reach. We're just going to reach. We're just going to keep reaching, keep reaching. Then you're going to create competition and we're all going to see who can reach further until we wish we hadn't. Mm-hmm. And I think you're absolutely right that the motives change, that science is very clear about how science started in universities and science started slowly. And then it, more labs came out and then everybody's doing it frivolously for, you know, paler trout that they can, you know, see in the, in the river when you're fishing and it makes it easier to catch them and stackable watermelons or something like that. And uh, as, <laughs> as it goes forward that, yes, that the, I always like to think that it's uh, in a Crichton book, it's the perversion of science that is what is the real risk. That somebody's out there perverting what, what should be done. And uh, that seems to be when people get into trouble with it. You know, it's amazing because I was never really like a really big science student or anything, mm-hmm. but I, I feel like I read a Michael Crichton book. And I'm like, I feel like I'm getting smarter. <laughs> yeah. It's inspirational. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I wonder, it surprises me because Crichton does seem so smart. He does seem to have been on the, on the, you know, you know, reading the journals. He's on the brink of what's new, but he seemed to have so much disdain for what science was saying. It's interesting oh, yeah. that uh, he, he seems to say we shouldn't trust the scientist or I don't know wh- where his, reservations were in their in their statements and their hypotheses and their outcomes he doesn't seem to trust the science and that was interesting for a guy that was so interested in science yeah i always said you know the guy could have probably been probably should have been like a scientist or a doctor you know for sure but he said he decided to get into pop culture and he's to the day the only person ever to have the number one book movie and tv show at the same time in the Mm -hmm. history of mankind Mm -hmm. that's incredible right well er i think it was was it congo forget what book it was, uh, but ER, uh, the book, oh, the book that came after Jurassic Park, I think it was Disclosure, might have been Disclosure. You know what's so funny about Disclosure is I read a, because uh, you, you can go on the archives and read like original book reviews, mm-hmm. and it did, one of them was like, this, whoa, did this age poorly, because I saw it in a meme <laughs> first. This age poorly is they're talking about in, in Disclosure that the reviewer from Rolling Stone is like clowning him saying like, Brian has reached too far with his day, his delusions of grandeur and stuff now. He's talking about like, like devices that can hold like three thousand books on it, and talking about virtual databases, stuff that'll never happen in our lifetimes. So I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I'm reading this on my Kindle right now. You know? <laughs> yes, so true. Yeah, even like the tricorder seems so crazy now. Everybody's cell phone is easily as good as any of those. They're hooked up to right our now. sleep That's patterns and our heart rate. Someone was talking about like, oh, the technology in Congo is just like so stupid. I was like, dude, it was wrote in 1980. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, it seems outdated now, you know. So. Mm-hmm. Well, they were looking at they were, they didn't call it this, but they were sort of on the on the brink of saying Ethernet cable or something like that. Yeah, the yeah. crystals in the talk, lasers. Yeah, talk about networking on the Death Star, man. I mean, they've, <laughs> they've been nailing this in science fiction for decades. Come on, yeah. I wonder if Michael Crichton would have, in another lifetime, have been. The Jeff Goldblum who sits at the front of a lecture and, 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 you know, has all the open minds and the young generation to sit there and just philosophizes in front of them, <laughs> telling them to, to what caution why the, all this stuff is wrong. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> just telling off the CEOs at businesses and stuff. I, I got that vibe when I was reading uh, Eaters of the Dead. And he's got like his footnotes underneath everything. I'm like, you're like, you're basically fact checking your own book right now, man. That is such a gangster move. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the things that uh, that causes everyone to to fall from grace in Jurassic Park is something that is a big element that is greatly attributed to a Crichton tale, and that is this element of um, not having humility before nature or this 
great hubris in new technologies and uh, to believe that the new technology is going to offer uh, you put all your complete control and faith in it and it's going to let you down and because of that you are are going to be smoted in a way <laughs> um, yeah. do you find a, a, there are a lot of books where where hubris is as opaquely written in like like Malcolm is saying you need to observe humility before nature you're not doing this it's, it's as bonus heavy handed as it could be in this book <laughs> Do you find a lot of stories are a little bit more subtle with it? State of fear might be the only one I think that's probably bigger because state of fear, everybody wants to talk about, like I said, the CC word, but there's a lot of stuff he talks about in there, like about how journalism just will control people. And I mean, a lot of people I know were reading that during lockdown. And regardless of how you feel about that, (laughs) I was like, there's a lot of stuff I'm seeing that kind of makes a lot of sense. And he talked about, you know, you journalism was gonna make a big comeback it was all gonna become like clickbait basically and i'm like wow a lot of stuff seems kind of prophetic now but uh, it's, it, it, it's like a cycle it's a loop it goes around and around and around it happens again it goes away it comes back goes around comes back that's just that's just that's just history you know doomed to repeat again and again and again but yeah definitely a big thing that his like hey maybe we should change maybe you shouldn't do this maybe you shouldn't do that maybe you should pay more attention to this maybe you should have more respect for things out there and uh you know Put down the cell phone. Go live your life, you know? <laughs> you can apply those messages to today, right? Yeah. Where's to live by, for sure. Well, as we're getting, uh, getting closer to our, the ending here, uh, I wanted to compare our lists of, uh, of preferred uh, Michael Crichton novels. And uh, I think we both put Jurassic Park first. I think I've got mine compared to yours here. This must be mine, Ella. You had Andromeda Strain at number two. I uh, I, I read it a long time ago. I know that... Uh, it's it's the gateway that a lot of people. If it wasn't Jurassic Park, it was probably Andromeda Strain that got people into him. When I made that list, it was also before I started doing the rereads. So a lot. Oh, of is that right? It was going off memory. Yeah, and I, I think with the Andromeda Strain, it's like it was just more nostalgic because it was the first science fiction book I ever read mm. like, ever. Ever. So I think it was there. You're making me do that list today. Sphere is number two, and Timeline's probably number three. Then Andromeda Strain. Yeah. Because I think Timeline just made me like I had never looked at time travel like that before. I'd always done like Back to the Future rules, you uh-huh. know. Uh, but he he really just gets into a way where you're like, wow, this this almost seems possible, you know. Of course, that's just the way that he did things. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Sphere, like I said, that ending just man, so good, so good. Yeah, Sphere is uh, is right there. I. I... And then, yeah, I love Timeline. There is the, the one moment, I don't know how the, your, your book was printed, but there's one moment where just before their, the, this fascination with the, their, their research partner could actually be in the past, when they turn the page yeah. and it says, yeah. help me. And it's yeah. written in his handwriting. And I remember just being gobsmacked. Like I literally yeah. stopped yeah. and stared at this blank page and just said, help me on it. And I was like, I was ah. a senior in high school reading that. And I was just like, yeah. people were like, what? What's wrong? Like, I think I'm having an aneurysm. <laughs> Yeah, so good. But yeah, so good. I, to think that a book could just make you stop and go, I don't even believe what I'm seeing here, uh, is fascinating. Yeah. That's really cool. That's he did I hate doing top ten. So I was, I've still never done a Stephen King top ten. I'm yeah. like, it's one of those things. Like right after I do it, I mean, an hour later, I'll be like, ah, it'd be mm-hmm. different if I did it again. It's very, you know? it's very subjective to the moment. But uh, I think you got a great collection here. I have Eaters of the Dead on my uh, bedside table. I'll read it again. I don't remember being eager to read it again. But uh, you got it up here at number four, so I'm definitely going to have to... It's, just a, it's a retelling of Beowulf. Yeah. So he took... A, what it was was a, a bet with one of his uh, doctor buddies. His, his doctor buddies was saying that uh, Beowulf was boring. And he was saying, I bet I could <laughs> rewrite Beowulf using this unfinished document that we found from Adlin Foblin. 
and I can make it really, really good. And the guy's like, okay, and he mm. did. <laughs> you know, that's what he did. So I, I think it's a a tribute to basically Viking culture, but also Beowulf. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you added tra- Great Train Robbery at the end. I've never seen it. I have to uh, go and get my hands on that someday and, uh, and see. It's a good movie, too. That actually is a Sean Connery. Yeah, it was a really, really good movie. Now he I directed it. He directed it. Oh, is that right? So I had to, when I considered what my list would be, I had to stop and think, well, actually, you know, not just what books would I go back and read, but which ones have I read the most? Which ones did I go back and read? And that meant that uh, Air, uh, sorry, Next had to be in there. I uh, I know I've read that one a couple of times, mostly because it's still kicking around my house in the hardcover. Um, but uh, one that's on my list that you didn't have was Airframe. Did you enjoy Airframe? Did you find it? I was looking forward to get into that in a reread. Cause I said, I remember that was like the one that I read in high school and I was like, I don't know. It feels like I'm kind of reading a, like a black box report yeah, or something. And I think I might've just been at the time. I just might not have been in the right place. And I was really looking forward to revisiting it because there's some other big Crichton fans on my discord server. And they're all like, they're like, that's a top five book for me. I'm like, what the hell? Maybe I just, <laughs> yeah, I was reading it like I was in the middle of finals or something. And I just, I just was not in a good place for it. So I, I'd like to revisit that one for sure. Well, top five is a little bit grander than I gave it, but I remember it being a really good mystery, really good, uh, like procedural detective sort of story. And I remember it being, yeah, it wasn't as sciencey as I might've thought it would have been, but I remember being surprised when it was over my, my book, it was, uh, I think I grabbed it from like a doctor's office like off their table <laughs> and it was all like elastic d- together. And so all the pieces yeah, were falling point, out. After, after Jurassic Park, Michael Crichton became my doctor's office in airport. Yeah. You could always find a book there. Yeah, for sure. So all the sections were falling out. So I was just reading them in pieces and like, uh, they almost look like oh, zines. No, and, uh, I thought that there was more, I was like, wow, this is really exciting. But of course I was at the end and I didn't realize, <laughs> I just remember thinking, wow, I can't wait to see I what's love- next. You're doing it like a uh, eaters of the dead, kind of like a pistolary <laughs> format, you know, where it's just kind of, a, oh, I'm going to put these pieces together. Like I'm reading Bram Stoker's Dracula. It was kind of like that. Read it all out of the place. It's found footage. <laughs> I think that you, you, you mentioned this a little bit. I think that it would be fun to, to, I have your, your top 10 list of your favorite books of all time. And, uh, oh. and you have one on here that I am eager I know they're at the library. I can't wait to go over and get them. But more importantly, so you had a new one there, Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurdy. You said that, that the character work in that was just extraordinary. That's maybe the best I've ever seen. It's incredible. Yeah. It's one that I've had on my list for a long time and never thought I'd read it because I was like, I don't like Westerns. But you know <laughs> what I like is amazing character work. And Brian Lee Durfee was on my channel recently. He talked about it. He said, what's great about Lonesome Dove, I think fancy fans love it, is because you could change the setting to knights instead of cowboys, and you probably still get the same story out of it. Hmm. That's neat. Then you had Hyperion by Dan Simmons, which I, I don't know either. Do it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Then, of course, oh, Jurassic yeah. Park. Jurassic Park is, uh, yeah, it, it's for a book that didn't win awards, for an author that was never regarded as, like, the top tier. It's astonishing how... The Jurassic Park fits in there. It's really a special book among, like, amongst even the rest of the, like, the next one you have here on the list is To Kill a Mockingbird. Like, Jurassic Park isn't in that category, but it, right. it's on the list. You know what I mean? It's uh, yeah. it's incredible. Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. I think I would have liked to have read that when I was a lot younger. Hmm. That would have made a big difference, I think, to me. They still they still put it in uh, business school. It's amazing. Is that right? <laughs> then uh, the surprise of the surprise, the Gone with the Wind is in here. That surprised a lot of people, I think, because they think, oh, Mike's just sci-fi fantasy. He isn't going to have, like, a historical fiction romance war epic. And just 
Look, I, I was born in Atlanta. There's a lot of Civil War history out there. I just got really interested in it. One day I said, oh, I guess I'll, I'll watch the movie. Loved it. Mm-hmm. And I was probably the only 13-year-old boy that was reading <laughs> The Wind ever, you know, and I loved it. I loved it. We're going to be reading it again. It's going to be my third time reading it. We're going to read it again in July with a, with a bunch of my patrons. It's going to be great. Well, I take the recommendation seriously. I'll, uh, I'll look it up. And then it looks like you had to pick one of the Lord of the Rings books. You picked Fellowship of the Ring, but um, and people got mad. They got mad. Oh, it was supposed to be one. If you story. could choose like, them all, you would, right? <laughs> it was well. The thing was like, if okay, if, if I say I'm counting Lord of the Rings as one, I got a song about. Do I count Song of Ice and Fire as one? Yeah. You know, I was like, I didn't want to do that. So I was like, I'm not going to move the field goal post for any series. Not even Mr. Tolkien, who's you know the master. Hmm. Hmm. And then, uh, and then, yeah, the uh, the Storm of Swords by George R. R. Martin. Incredible. And uh, how many of those books wound up getting written? Five. Yeah. Yeah, five. Were they all worth it? Do you have to? Do you have to read them all, or is or is it like each I mean, each book? You want to be miserable like me and been waiting forever? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Go ahead. And read them all. You know what we did? We read the um, series of unfortunate events, and there's fifteen of those. And I'd say, I'd say, if you went through eight of them, you got it. <laughs> you don't my need wife, my wife swears by them. I never did. I watched the Netflix series with her. I had a good time with it, but uh, uh, no, I never, I never read that. I think it's you had to read when you were younger. They yeah. were they were horrendously repetitive and uh, mm-hmm. and formulaic in a way, and they kind of like twisted a little bit at the end. But it's a lot, a lot, a lot of the same the stuff. The show kind of makes over. fun of that. They're like, "Yes, we know you're actually Count Olaf. We know." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's funny. It has a what? Doogie Howser is a is Count right. Olaf. He's, he's so good. He's but you, so good, dude. Fifteen, fifteen. That's a lot. <laughs> Anyhow, there's this like OCD completionist in me that says, "Once you get started, you got to go with it." And uh, and uh, I did it. And we had the whole As collection. Someone who's working through fifteen Robin Hobb books right now. Okay. <laughs> you should make a rule for yourself that you can pull the shoot if you need to like you should make a policy where like if these circumstances are met (laughs) oh i think what i've said is like i look i don't dnf books very often but i'll dnf a series if i get like three books in a row i don't like i will eject i got too much stuff i'll never be able to read before i die you know so uh not to be so morbid about it i'm like i got no problem if you are not having a good time man eject and then you got two more here that are ones I haven't read, have always wanted to. Uh, it by Stephen King, uh, which must be as fascinating as a story that you think I, it is. I love coming of age. Coming of age is like my favorite yes. little subject, and that has seven coming of age stories in it. It's mm-hmm. it's so good, and then people think it's always oh, just a big about big scary clown. I mean, yeah, that's there, but mm-hmm. there's so much like coming of age stuff in there. And uh, obviously, I think again. With Gen Xers, we were kind of like fascinated. How everybody was like fascinated with the '80s there for a minute recently. Mm-hmm. In the '80s, we were fascinated with the 1950s. Yeah, you know, I felt like that kind of gave me a peek into my parents' childhood. I think. Mm-hmm. And I remember the original. Um, I think it was made for TV, two part yeah. movie, and it had like Harry Anderson and I think Seth Green was in it. And yeah, uh, mm-hmm. but I remember like I loved that it was like when they were kids, then when they were adults, and yeah. and then when they remade it, and then it too. Um, it's the same idea, them. but like in terms of like the character work and bringing them all forwards, and I, we know what Stephen King can do. Um, really interesting. I would love to check that out. It feels like it would be uh, a commitment, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think with that and the stand, I tell people just like just just go into it knowing, okay, I'm going to be taking a while with this. Yeah, not a race. You know, just take your time. And be like, I'm going to be doing this for a while. I'll be doing this for a long time. 
But the one the one that I've had on my list that I've wanted to read, and I'm just trying to clear some things off my plate before I get into it, is Dune. And uh, I, I, this whole sci-fi world that we know kind of inspired franchises and things like that, I, it sounds like it must be just really, really interesting to get in there. I've seen the crazy original film, and uh, I would love to know just where on earth that all comes from. I think Sting was in the damn movie. He better be in the book, too. <laughs> I, I can't wait to go see Dune. I'm, I love to see it on the number one on this list because that really makes me excited to check it out. Yeah, I mean, uh, I it's one of those books where I always say I don't recommend it to everybody because yeah. it's not a people pleaser. It's just it just some people it just hits the right way and it just completely changes everything. And some people are like they go into it wanting Star Wars and it's like it's not Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Like Lucas took all the stuff he loved about Dune and he said I'm going to mix it with Flash Gordon and mm-hmm. that's how he came up with Star Wars. You know, so. And, and I like to go about a uh, seven samurai, seven samurai. Is that what's called anyway. The samurai movie. I forget what it's called. Uh, that that's kind of how he came up with Star Wars by mashing those things up. So people that go into it expecting like pew pew lasers and spaceships, mm-hmm. you don't get that. <laughs> it really isn't. It's just a thought provoking book, and it has that hero's journey that I talk about. I love yeah. that stuff. Yeah, I'd be really interested in that. There's one I'll ask you if you've checked it out that I would be interested in only because. Every time it gets adapted to the screen and has been done so often uh, that it's always a little bit different. It's always so strange. I would love to see what the source text had to say, and that's The Planet of the Apes. Huh. Have you yeah, ever found that? I've read Pierre Bolton, yeah, the original book. I, I, I like those 60s movies. I grew up watching yeah. them, and so when I read the book, I was like, oh, well, that's an interesting ending. You know, that isn't what I, I thought. And then the Tim Burton movie, when it when it came out, he actually adapted that ending. And it was like, oh, okay, well, now I get it. But uh, no, I think uh, the, the I, I still prefer the movie just because I think when I was a kid and I saw that, that Heston scene with the statue, I lost it. That yeah. was like probably the most, I say to the day, besides No, I Am Your Father, that's probably my most shocking movie moment, like of yeah. all time. And yeah. I think we I was like seven, I think, when I saw it. But yeah, yeah, great, great stuff. But yeah, I feel like they, they, they remake Planet of the Apes about every every 10 years. They'll just try to reboot it, and they'll do it a different way. Most of them, most of them I enjoy, uh, some more than others. But, uh, yeah, I thought that the Matt Reeves ones were pretty good. Right on. So you recommend the book? Yeah, I think so. It's a quick read. It's like 220 pages. Is that it? You can read it a couple days. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a quick read. You know, there's a bunch of books that are, like, inspired... Um so many of the 90s sci-fi films like Total Recall and things like that and those are all short little books it's amazing how these fascinating little stories are, are gold mines for for uh, really sparking our imagination in a lot of different ways yeah I like uh, like uh, I love Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, with John Carter of Mars books and I, I thought that movie was good I hate that Disney just kind of like they knew they had gotten Star Wars so they just kind of just threw that movie out of the bus didn't give it like any support and everybody goes back and watches it. I thought this movie's actually pretty good. I'm like, I know. It was really, really good. And now they're like, oh, well, the IP is so damaged now. I don't think we'll ever make another John Carter. Like, You've made so many bad Tarzan movies, and you make a new Tarzan movie every three years. <laughs> Why can't we try John Carter again? I don't get it. It's amazing how some things are evergreen, and but they don't have a good seed to start well, with. <laughs> name one good Tarzan movie besides like the Disney animated movie. Like, name one great Tarzan live action movie. I haven't you have seen to go them. back to like the 40s or something, right? So, I think I watched, yeah. I think it was Tarzan. Maybe it was Hercules. There's one episode and it was like a TV show and, and Tarzan was peering over a waterfall and it was just his eyes over the waterfall and the hunter shoots him in the leg. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is ridiculous. <laughs> 
Uh, hopefully, hopefully now they're getting out of this. Um, I mean, I assume that the superhero boom is going to finally start to die down a little bit, which sounds weird to say because my whole life growing up was like, I wish they would make these superhero movies. And I'm like, I'm fucking stop making the superhero movies. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they'll they'll dip back into some of these these old sci-fi frames. I'm hoping that's what, what Doom would be successful enough that they would start saying, oh, let's dip into some of these sci-fi franchises because you know, Song of Ice and Fire got big after between that and Lord of the Rings it was like nothing. Now they're trying to adapt all this fancy stuff, and it's terrible. Terrible. You know, so maybe you guys should do like Apple TV's doing, try to get more into some of the science fiction stuff. You know, they're doing Foundation, which is pretty cool. I'd like to see more of that, you know. There are some great sci-fi things out. H.G. Wells, Edgar Rice Burroughs, like I said, that just isn't getting adapted. That they could be just a goldmine out there. Quit remaking stuff, making mm-hmm. new things. There's so many great IPs out there that I'm sure they've got the rights to already. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You'd like to think when they go and make their billions on some of these films that they could invest some of them on a risk and try something. Well, I said, like, look, I, I, I think that someone, they were talking about recently that, that, that they had acquired a lot of uh, Crichton stuff. I was like, I would love to see some of these remakes like for, like, HBO Max. I'm like, oh, you make, like, a sphere for HBO Max? Sure, I'd watch that. Yeah. That'd be great. Awesome stuff. Yeah. 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 Some neat, there's definitely some neat ideas out there. Um, Well... I can't wait to, to check out some of uh, check out some of these books and then get your reviews afterwards. I've enjoyed the channel; it's been really cool. Thanks, and, uh, I appreciate thanks, it. Man. Thanks for coming on and talking books with me. This has been awesome. I really appreciate it. Right, man, this is this is what I do. I love it. I, right I on. Talk like, about it. Uh, I hope it. I try to talk about anybody I know about this in real life. They'd be like, "You talking about that Doom thing again?" You know, they, <laughs> they, would, they, would, they wouldn't care. They're like, "Oh, Michael Crichton. I like Jurassic Park. You know that one, you know, because mm-hmm. they can buy you know Jurassic Park under ruse at Walmart for the kids right now. You know? well, I think if anybody's interested, like finding a cool book podcast is one thing, but like it seems like you are very uh, adept at at interacting with people when they make a comment and stuff like that. So like in terms of building a community, right. chatting and sharing about books and stuff like that, um, yeah, Mike's books reviews is a good spot because there's a lot of discussion there too as well. That's the whole reason I did it. I wanted to find people to talk to about these books and talk back with me because uh even my wife was like you got to find another outlet i'm not reading that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right on well well thanks for having me man i appreciate it. it's been a lot of fun it's been a, a, a great pleasure thank you so much you got it man all right a big thank you to mike from mike's book reviews on facebook and instagram go find him uh thanks so much for coming on the show the text this week's text is control like i said the final chapter named control Uh, that we're going to deal with, spanning from pages 359 to 364. In a synopsis, Tim, Lex, Grant, and Gennaro rush to the control room to get the power back on. Tim takes control of the computer, racing and struggling with the system while guided with information from Gennaro to switch to main power, restore power, and contact the A and B. Characters. Tim Murphy. Tim gets into the control room and is ready to work at the computers on page 359. He receives a notification from the computer that they cannot move forward until auxiliary power is switched to main power. So he starts looking for how to do that. The screen is flashing because power is low. It's an emergency on page 360. He's sick to his stomach with fear as he struggles to figure out what to do on page 361. But he manages to activate main power. Grant said something that Tim didn't hear. He only heard the tension in his voice on 361, which is an interesting way to illustrate how focused he is, but he's working his way through the system. There just isn't any time, but he battles the pressure and gets the power back on, frying the raptors. Noticing the crewman on the A&B preparing to dock, Tim studies the startup screen to find telecom RSD. He ignores the 23 waiting calls 
and Lex, who tries to get him to listen to the messages on page 362. He finds the directory, scans it for the name he's looking for, but the computer isn't a phone. He doesn't know how to dial it, and then he doesn't know how to speak into it. But Tim finds the receiver mounted on the side of the console on page 363, and when Gennaro gets the ship to turn around, Tim slumps back in his chair, wiping sweat from his forehead. Lex Murphy. Lex sees the blinking screens and asks what happened on page 359, and then urges Tim to, quote, do something on page 360, about the velociraptors threatening the mainland and lodge. She yells at Tim as the raptors continue to threaten the others in the lodge, too. As everyone celebrates the restoration of main power, Lex recalls they still have to stop the ship from reaching the mainland, too, on page 362. She sees that there are 23 messages waiting for them, and wonders if they should listen to them. One could be from the ship, but she is ignored. When they can't figure out how to answer the phone, Lex insists that they answer it. She ultimately is a backseat driver in this case, what we call an armchair quarterback. She's got all the answers, but none of the skills to execute the plan. When Gennaro gets the ship to turn around, Lex cheers. Dr. Alan Grant. Grant gingerly moves his hand toward the keyboard as he approaches the computer, admitting, I don't know anything about computers on page 360, indicating he's willing to jump in and figure this out if he must. When Timmy restores the main power and blows up the Raptors, Grant responds with astonishment. Probably more because Tim understands computers so well than because he can't believe it was possible. He's genuinely impressed by Tim. And Tim is genuinely impressive. Grant is impressed with Gennaro, too, asking, what's the Uniform Maritime Act? Especially when he discovers it was all a bluff on 364. But he ensures Gennaro, the hard part, is just beginning. Donald Gennaro. Gennaro recalls the last time he saw the auxiliary power low in the control, and recalls it's important to switch to main power on page 360. So all those questions he'd asked before have come in handy now. When Captain Freddy starts giving Tim guff, Gennaro seizes the phone and BSs some code violation that requires the ship to turn around and come right back on 364, thus saving the world from a couple velociraptors. Gennaro admits he made the code violation all up. Dr. Ian Malcolm. He's still laid up in the lodge, but is speechless as the raptors are breaking through the skylight on 361. Robert Muldoon. He cheers when the raptors get fried on 361 as well. Freddie and Jim. This is Frederick D. Farrell, the Ann B.'s captain. He's listed in the Jurassic Park phone directory as Vessel Ann B. Freddie, 7053902, which is his phone number. When Freddie accepts the call, he expects he'll be speaking with John, likely John Arnold, not Hammond, on 363. Freddie's dialogue is some of the first where Crichton seems to be applying some sort of vernacular. Malcolm gets a few uhs in his comments, but Freddie speaks with uh, hello? and repeats that expression when answering the phone. This is the same voice we hear way back at the beginning of the tour, when a voice drawled, uh, John, this is the A&B over at the dock. We haven't finished offloading, but I'm looking at the storm pattern south of us. I'd rather not be tied up here if the chop gets any worse. On 153, the voice draws, according to Crichton, but it's credited to someone named Jim on 153, as Arnold asks if they're done unloading, which they admit they are not. Nonetheless, this man with the same vocal inflections doesn't want to listen to Tim because he's some damn kid on 363. In any case, I think it's a conversation with at least two people in the room, and now they quarrel over this strange phone call. They aren't sure if they heard his name correctly, they wonder if it's a joke, a friggin' ham operator, but their voices are just indistinct, and the noise from the static breaks the transmissions in spots on 363. The drawled reply to get Tim off the radio indicates that this is, yes, the same vocal affectations and accent as Arnold spoke with on the phone back earlier, but again, this voice was accredited to Jim, not Freddie. And that said, I guess the two guys could have similar accents and vernaculars. It's just, it's tough that Crichton really only puts two people with special vernacular together beside each other in the same scene. That's kind of frustrating. While the crewmen aren't taking any guff from Tim, who sounds like a kid, when Gennaro jumps on and threatens them with violating the Uniform Maritime Act, they are dumbstruck and then turn around when threatened with $50,000 fines and five-year jail sentences. 
Velociraptors, they snarl and are about to get through the bars when the power returns, and they're caught, writhing and screaming in a, quote, hot cascade of sparks on 361. Localities, we have the control room. Tim touches the screen. We're told on page 360, recalling that this is a touchscreen computer using infrared technology. Punta Arenas. Through a monitor, Tim can see the A&B carrying the stowaway Velociraptors only 200 yards from the dock. The prow of the ship is just moments away from reaching the Punta Arenas dock on 363. The lodge, uh, we see through a monitor. Tim can also see the Velociraptors on the lodge roof hanging down. This is also referred to as a hotel room on 361. And sparks fall from the skylight as the power is restored, frying the Velociraptors in the ceiling. Stylistic techniques. Italics. The ship is italicized, says Lax on 362, pointing to the screen as everyone seems to have forgotten about their second mission to stop the A and B from reaching Punta Arenas. Answer it! On 363, all in italics, stresses Lex, just wasting air by saying out loud what everybody is already trying to figure out. But she's raising the tension, showing the frustrations. That, so the italics are employed in a useful way to stress to readers. This is very stressful. Ellipses. Dear God. Ellipsis, utters Malcolm, heard over the radio, just as the raptors are breaking through the skylight. Here the ellipsis shows that he's trailing off, perhaps speechless, that his life maybe, you know, has come to this end. There's probably some way to find out who Freddy was, ellipsis, on page 363, where here the ellipsis indicates that what Tim is doing is a task which is ongoing and incomplete, and so he's just kind of trailing off. M-dash, hello, this is Tim Murphy, and I need you to M-dash, 363 is being cut off by Freddy on 363, which indicates that they aren't listening to him. He's just some kid. The M-dash is also used to, rep uh, to represent noise, indicating that the static is affecting the message's transmission. We have exclamations. Hey! Exclamation. All right! Exclamation on 361 exclaims Tim, showing a relief of the tension they were feeling in their struggle to return to main power. Grant agrees. Tim's accomplishments have saved the day. That's it! Exclamation mark. You did it! <laughs> exclamation on 362. Quote, maybe... That way, you could get the phone number, exclamation. On 362 says Lex trying to find their solution to their problem, but she's being ignored. Don't land the boat, exclamation mark. Don't land the ship, exclamation. Come back to the island, exclamation. So that's all Tim making sure that the, the, the boat operators do not land. They have to come back. He's being very specific and direct. He's ex being exclamatory in this, and so we get that. Uh, we have computer screen simulations. The computer screen simulation sort of resembles a flowchart representing the Jurassic Park system startup. There's... Startup AB and Startup CND. It's mostly abbreviations and or just initials. It's likely representative of an impenetrably difficult to interpret layout. And Crichton has succeeded in making this an intimidating and confusing obstacle facing our heroes in 369. The computer screen simulation represents this. And then there are more charts on page 360 and page 361. They're filled with confusing abbreviations like RSC, 55-99, and CSX, 89A, etc., etc. They're impenetrable. We cannot understand what they mean. And the screen, the simulations, they, they represent this well. Rather than, you know, Crichton just saying that they were confusing, he shows how confusing they are. It's good. Capitalization. Crichton or the publisher have turned to capitalization to denote what is displayed on the computer screen. So, warning. Command execution aborted auxiliary power low on 360 and the other details about the main power grid and the main power on 361 and the reset grids and the main set one and specify grid number to reset, etc. These are all capitalized. But it's not fun or interesting to see what it all says. It's clearly how to demonstrate that these are commands on a computer and not dialogue or narrative. Capitalization in a lot of respects here, and especially navigating the computer, relate to Crichton's uh, employment of, of creating high tension going forward. You have 23 waiting calls and or messages. Do you wish to receive them now? 
vessel A and B, Freddy, dial now or dial later, etc. Again, the tension is being built up here with the capitalizations. It sounds like the computer is kind of yelling at them, uh, making and you know every step along the way a struggle. Where the consequences of not achieving these tasks is velociraptorization. Uh, just in phoning the ship, they're in a rush. It's almost docking. Tim has to figure out where in the computer to find the telephone. Then he's delayed by the 23 waiting calls and or messages. Then he has to ignore his sister. Then he has to find the directory. Then he has to scan the enormous directory, which isn't alphabetical. Then, sorry, you cannot be completed as dialed. But that's just, uh, you know, trying to make a phone call. The frustration and high stakes genuinely make this a really stressful moment in the book. But the tact Crichton uses, crafting... A, you know, frustration at every step of the way he makes the characters have to earn their victories. And then they can't figure out how to speak into whatever the receiver is. Then they can't get Freddy to listen to them. Then Gennaro has to pull out some maritime axe violation out of his nether regions to finally save the day. Discussion. Show, don't tell. Grant said something that Tim didn't hear. He only heard the tension in his voice on page 361, which is an interesting way to illustrate how focused Tim is on 361. Uh, this works because I think we can all relate that there are, you know, have been times where we're focused on something and we do not hear others, but certainly understand the tone. There's a different interpretation there. So the uniform maritime law would represent, you know, I guess a few agencies seem to be united under a singular agreement or an international uniformity, which nautical nations will accept so that there is some level of agreed upon lawfulness for vessels while at sea. The uniform maritime law isn't a $50,000 fine and five years imprisonment for a uniform or dress code violation, as it might sound. You, you would have to have quite the wardrobe malfunction to levy consequences so high. But that's doable, I guess. Uh, we have some contrivances in plot. The big problem with the park in the second half of this book is that auxiliary power was used up and the whole park shut down. John Arnold hadn't noticed that they were running on auxiliary power after they shut the system down to clear the modems. But, like, the first thing... Tim does at the computer is he gets a notification that the process has been aborted because auxiliary power is low. So should Arnold have also received a notification like this? Would he have ignored that? This warning is that the power is, quote, low, so perhaps auxiliary power was high when Arnold did all of, you know, his restoration of the systems and maybe did not receive the warning. I don't know. But in any case, it sounds like when auxiliary power is low, a warning pops up. Earlier in the novel, a warning does pop up, but it was like with only five minutes of fuel to spare, and that's far too late. Cliffhangers. And after all the tension and drama and high stakes and their resolutions, Crichton still reminds us the hard part is just beginning on 364. What a cliffhanger. All right, as we sign off today, I want to say thank you to, to Mike from Mike's Book Reviews on, on, uh, on YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And special thank you to Felix for, for helping set up my speakers so that Mike sounded good and clear on the show. He would have otherwise sounded like the voice you heard when you put uh, two tin cans together tied by a string. But Felix hooked me up, so thanks, thanks, buddy. I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book and add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me on my ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, and gush over, chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Park cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Papers. And you can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers or me, I'm on Twitter at RogersRyan22. 
Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast, where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. Until next time.